Beloved, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22, a blood-bought eternal inheritance, a blood-bought eternal inheritance. Now, this sermon this week has come with great difficulty, not because uh, I don't know that the text is confusing, but I was a little confused and I struggled. But the main thrust I want us to see this morning is that we have this grand inheritance that's been purchased for us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been looking at Hebrews for some time now. We've stated that the, the main theme of of Hebrews and just three words is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Last week we saw that Jesus gave a better sacrifice. You see, Jesus in his better sacrifice ministers with better blood in the heavenly tabernacle. A blood that was given once for all time. It's no longer being repeated. No longer do we have to offer over and over again the Lord Jesus Christ as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but we offer Jesus, and he offered himself once for all time, that this blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from our dirty conscience that we might serve the living God. Well, today we're going to look at verses 15 through 22 of Hebrews chapter 9. It's found on page 1006 of your pew Bible. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Having reflected on the better sacrifice with the better blood, the blood that cleanses the conscience, he picks up now in verse 15 and following. Therefore, he, antecedent being Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where there is a will, or you could also translate this word diatheke covenant, where there's a will, as in last will and testament, is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will or covenant takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. May God bless his eternal and infallible word. Let's go and ask him to do that. Our Father and our God, we come before you 
We cry to you, Abba, Father, because we have the spirit, not of slavery, but the spirit of adoption, the spirit that cries out within us and through us. Lord Jesus, come and bless my poor efforts, for I am weak of heart and poor in so many ways, but you are rich in mercy, abundant to all who call upon you, ready to grant more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Come and be our teacher. Help us to understand and know something of the grand inheritance that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, an inheritance that was purchased not with the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus sprinkled on us, washed over us, that we might be sons of the Father in our elder brother Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Bless now the preaching of your word, we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. An inheritance, Oxford Dictionary defines as follows, literal property or an estate which passes by law to the heir on the decease of the possessor. Literal property or an estate which passes by law to the heir on the decease of the oppressor. This week, as I've been thinking about an inheritance, I read that there was a man recently who died, 86 years of age, in Chicago, Illinois. He died with $11 million, but he had no heirs, none whatsoever. There's been a law firm that's been hired to find someone related to this man. Oh, (laughs) we might receive that letter. But if you do receive that letter, it's estimated, based on what they've done, that there's some, some, some posterity that the man has back in across the pond in London, Britain, and throughout Europe. And they're estimating 111 surviving heirs or benefactors, if you will. It's estimated they'll receive a check for roughly about $80,000. And I thought to myself, that would be a nice day in the mail, wouldn't it, to receive a check from someone you don't even know, you never heard of, and find out you're an heir. And here's the $80,000 that you can use. Well, we have a much greater inheritance, don't we, church? An inheritance that can either perish, spoil, or fade, that's kept for you in heaven, even as you are kept by faith for that inheritance. Well, this morning, let's look at this concept, this concept of an inheritance, and let's explore a little bit the text, and we're going to close by looking at three aspects of our inheritance, but we're going to look at the text under the two headings as follows. The mediator of the covenant, verses 15 to 17, that is the mediator of the covenant, 15 to 17, and then the blood of the covenant in verses 18 to 22. So the mediator of the covenant, 15 to 17, and then the blood of the covenant, verses 18 to 22. So first, the, the mediator of the covenant in verses 15 to 17. In Hebrews 9, we, we've seen, haven't we, repeatedly the superiority of Christ's blood. You see, his blood can effectually cleanse from sin. His blood can do what the blood of bulls only could do in a foreshadow, in a typological way. They could not cleanse the conscience, but Jesus' blood actually secures the deal. It gets the job done. 
And here in verse 15, the preacher picks up on this and he draws out an inference. Notice the first word of verse 15. Therefore, or you could translate it, or for this purpose, therefore he, that is Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. When he's speaking of the first covenant in this particular text here in Hebrews, his antecedent is the Mosaic covenant. So you can take your pencil and write over that when it says first covenant, he's referring to the antecedent being the Mosaic covenant, that covenant that God cut with the children of Israel there at Sinai. Now let me just say this as well. As I was in my study and I was working through this text, Rick Phillips was extremely helpful. And if you want a great accessible commentary on Hebrews, let me commend that to you. Rick Phillips, he's at Second Pres in South Carolina, a fine expositor, a man's man, a faithful servant of the word. But when we think about a mediator, we want to think about someone who brings together two parties, right? One perhaps might be uh, estranged. A mediator brings those parties together to, to make amends, to bring peace. And saints, Christ as our mediator agrees to be our sacrifice for our sins, that he might reconcile us to God. He might redeem us, that is, purchase us out of the, the penalty of sin, for the wages of sin is death. So someone has to pay the price. So Christ in his holy blood redeems us. He pays the price to redeem us to his Father, that he might procure for us an eternal inheritance for those, we're told in the text, who have been effectually called. Not just generally called, right? Whosoever will is the general call. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But in the Reformed community, we believe the Bible to teach that there's an effectual call. Not only does God give the, the general call, whosoever will, but he actually calls us out of darkness, translating us into his marvelous light, taking away the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, making us willing and able to believe. You see, God doesn't believe for us. But he makes me willing and able to believe by his spirit, effectually working through the word of God as it's faithfully preached. There's power in the word. He effectually regenerates our hearts and calls us. So we're the called of God. We've been effectually called by his grace. But notice how the preacher's reasoning starts. It starts with understanding that the first covenant, that is the covenant with Moses, required perfect obedience of the people. The first covenant required perfect obedience of the people. The law is absolute. Listen to Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he or she will live by them. Be ye perfect is the New Testament equivalent. You must be perfect. You must be perfect as God, the triune God, is perfect. Without blemish, morally speaking. Undefiled. You must be if you are to live. 
Conversely, Deuteronomy 27, 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not continue to do the words of the law. Cursed are you. Cursed are you if you do not to continue to keep all that's written in the law. You see, life and death were put before Israel at Sinai. If they obey, they will live. They will prosper in the land. But if they disobey, cursed will be my people. Lo, I mean, not my people. They'll be cursed. Just as the word of God is clear, the soul that sins will surely die. This morning, I want you to begin there. Have you sinned? What do you mean? Over the past five minutes? Everybody in this room has sinned. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who seek after God. So what's the verdict for us? Cursed. Cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the law. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In Exodus 24, verse 3, you might remember as I was reading, after hearing and receiving the law from Moses, the people who have just been redeemed out of the house of bondage there in Egypt responded there in verse 3 in chapter 24 of Exodus, all the words that the Lord, the covenant Lord Yahweh, that is Yahweh the, the living God, not the imagination of men, but the God who is and was and ever will be, the living God, all the words that the living Lord, the covenant Lord have spoken, we will what? Do. If the people failed, the, the curses of the covenant would fall upon them. And one of the best ways to, to understand the, the terms of the covenant, one of the best ways to understand the old covenant itself in redemptive history is through a ceremony that took place on two hills in Samaria. Mount Ebal, you might remember, and Mount Gerasim. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 27, as the people of God have gathered there for, my, for Moses' farewell sermons, he gives them this sermon regarding the blessings and the cursings of the covenant as they relate to these two mountains. And at these two mountains, the Lord called all the 12 tribes of Israel to gather. On Mount Ebal, six tribes stood and read the curses of the covenant that is the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that we just alluded to. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the law. They stood and read the curses of the covenant for disobedience. So the curses were read for idolatry. And all the people said, Amen. Then the same curse came down for, for the breaking of your marital vows. For the committing of sin against adultery. And all the people who had gathered there in Mount Ebal said, Amen. And the curse for murder came, and all the people said, Amen. And on and on, the, the curses for sin were read, and each time the people cried, Amen. 
And then Deuteronomy 27, 26 was read. Cursed be anyone who does not affirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. But there's another mountain. That was Mount Ebal, where the curses were read. And, but there's Mount Gerasim, which is just adjacent to it. And in the valley, and then Mount Ebal. On Mount Gerasim stood the other six tribes where the blessings for obedience were read. Blessing after blessing were read. If the people obeyed the book of the covenant and the law, the rain would be abundant. That might not mean much to you, but if you're living in an agrarian culture, in 1400 BC, it means a whole lot. Rain is a life source in an agrarian culture. If the people were obedient, rain would be abundant. Their children would prosper, and there would be no lack. And then there was an ultimate benediction there in Deuteronomy 28. For obedience, the Lord promises, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. He has sworn to you, if, if you keep the commandments of Yahweh, your God, and you walk in his ways, blessed are you. God's benediction will rest upon you. His smile will accompany you when you go into Canaan to take the land, which was a typological foreshadowing of the great inheritance of the new heavens and new earth that we have in the new covenant. You see, the conditions for the people of Israel were clear. Obey, and there were blessings. Eye has not seen, ear, nor ear heard. But if the people disobeyed, they would, they would suffer the curses of the covenant. And if you want to understand just how bad it was, go and read the curses of the covenant as they're laid out for us in Leviticus 27. Cursed will be so bad, the curse of disobedience will be so bad that the day would come in Israel, the visible church in the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where mothers would eat their own babies. Cannibalism. Because the Lord had abandoned them to judgment, to exile, because of their infidelity, their lack of fidelity to the Lord in marriage, in a marriage covenant that he had cut. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? The Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament historical record is a, is a sad commentary on Israel's performance, right? Culminating with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586. We're told there that the, the nation was carried into exile. As, as the curses of the covenant fell on Israel, the nation, the people of God. Saints, it's important for us to remember as I'm Elaborating on this, that at the foundation, the Mosaic Covenant was an administration of the one covenant of grace. Yes, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, verse, or rather paragraph 5. But at a typological level, it was conditioned on the people's obedience. If they were to obey, they could stay in the land. But if they did not obey, they would be exiled and kicked out of the land. And we know that the people failed miserably. Saints, with the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, the, the question was now asked, was, was this the end 
was all that was left was judgment and exile for the people of God, a fiery expectation of the wrath of God. Where was the gospel in all of this? Had sin defeated the promises of God? Well, saints, the good news is that the living God had made a prior covenant with Abraham, a covenant that did not depend on the people's obedience to the law. The Abrahamic covenant was established on the basis of a unilateral promise in which God himself swore, right? We saw in chapter 6. God made this promise to Abraham, right? Abraham, your descendants will be as the nations, will be as the stars. All the nations, kings will come from your seed. Not only did God give a promise, he gave an oath. And we were reminded in Hebrews 6, it's impossible for God to lie. Let me just share with you just the promise itself from Genesis 17, 7 that God gave to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I want you to notice in this covenant that God cut there with Abraham, there's no if you do this, I will do this. There's no if-then clause. There's no conditionality. Nor does Abraham make any promises on his part of the covenant. No, beloved, God alone guarantees the fulfillment of this covenant. And do you remember Genesis 15 when God came and ratified this covenant? And he cut with Abraham? He instructs Abraham to gather some animals. And Abraham does. And he cuts the animals up according to God's instruction. And he lays the pieces of the animals out across from each other with a little alley between them. We're even told that the birds of the air came and began to eat the animals that had been sacrificed. And normally, when you cut a covenant in the ancient world, both parties would walk through that little alley, signifying, both agreeing to let it be unto me like these animals if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant. But you need to remember, where was Abraham when this covenant was cut? We're told that Abraham was what? He was asleep. And God alone walked through the animals, signifying his willingness to take sole responsibility for fulfilling the promise and oath he had made. God was saying, let me be cursed if I do not fulfill my word to my friend Abraham. Let me be like these animals if I do not fulfill my covenant, my unilateral promise and oath to Abraham. And we need to remember and never forget is that when we're thinking about the conditionality of the Mosaic covenant is that underneath and behind the conditions of this covenant was the unilateral promise and oath of the Abrahamic covenant. So you might be asking, you're sitting there asking, And you should be if you're understanding the logic of the text and the the logic of Pauline theology in general. You should be asking, well, why then the Mosaic Covenant? Why would God, 430 years after this unilateral covenant that was cut with Abraham, God's friend, with no conditions for Abraham to fulfill, why would God introduce 430 years later another covenant? that held all these conditions. What was God saying? What was God doing? Why did God give the law covenant through Moses? 
God knew that no one was going to be able to perfectly keep the law covenant. There's none righteous, no, not one. We even know after the days of Noah's flood, when Noah and his sons and his wife comes out of the, the ark, God looks on the heart of man and he says, there, there's no righteousness in him. His evil goes astray. There's nothing good within man. And yet God still imposed this covenant that required perfect obedience as a condition for blessing. So why did God do it? What was God trying to teach the people? What is he trying to teach us? Simply this, Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law, which is holy, righteous, and good, while it can perfect nothing, serves God's purpose to establish our need for grace. The law functions like a mirror to show us our sin that we might cry out, Woe is me! Like Isaiah, I'm undone! Like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? You see, that's the purpose of the law, to see our need for Jesus. Philip Hughes defines it as follows. The law makes clear man's guilt before God. Despairing of his or her efforts to achieve righteousness by his works, man's only hope was to turn away from himself and see the refuge of faith in the pardoning grace which had been promised. Thus the law was our custodian. The law was our tutor. The law was our disciplinarian until Christ came that we might be justified by what? By works of the law? No, but by the hearing of faith. Paul asked the same question in Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? Why would God give the Mosaic Covenant? Listen to Paul. It was added, that is the Mosaic Covenant, the law, because of transgressions until the offspring, that is Abraham's seed, should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul continues, the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. Saints, God gave the law with Christ in mind so that salvation would come by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, all to the glory of God alone. Are you following the logic of the gospel? Romans 11.32 For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have mercy on all. All of us are in the same plot. All of us are in the same cast. All of us are without God, without hope, unless God intervenes. Unless God provides the blood for the new covenant, we have no hope. Zero. Muslims have no hope. Jehovah Witness, no hope. Buddhists, no hope. Goldman Sachs executive, no hope. Who will provide the blood of the covenant? Beloved, mercy has come to us as our inheritance through the blood of Christ. Where sin abounded, 
grace superabounded. As the hymn writer says, our sins were many, but his mercy is more. You see, the law is clear. We need to hear the law. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all things written in the law. But Christ in his innocent life of infinite value bore the curse of the law in his own body. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the Mosaic covenant from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree and now because christ the new covenant mediator has redeemed sinners from the curse of the law to grant them the inheritance and blessing promised abraham and what is the inheritance we're going to talk about this and explore this later but i just want us to think what is your inheritance church forgiveness of sins the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of sanctification that God progressively sanctifies you. He's declared you righteous. But then the Holy Spirit gets busy in you, working to will within you, that you progress, that you start to become more like God. That He takes you to form you to His image. You see, that's His telos, that you might be conformed to Him. It's not a truncated gospel. Jesus saves me. I like sinning. He likes forgiving. It's a great deal. No, 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 no. When the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ captures your heart and it captures your imagination, it kills indifference. It kills ambivalence. No, you say, oh, I only have one life. Oh, to have 10,000 tongues. Oh, to have many lives to give for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the love of Christ floods into your heart and the love of Christ constrains you. Oh, I want to obey him. Oh, I want to be like him. Oh, his law is written on my heart. Oh, his Holy Spirit lives within me. Oh, I want to be like my father, my brother, and the Holy Spirit. I want to be like the triune God. I want to see him face to face. I want to come and dwell with him in the Holy of Holies. You see, we can, beloved, because our elder brother, Jesus Christ, has given his blood, his infinite blood, his perfect blood, his undefiled blood for you to wash you and to cleanse you. You see, when this begins to capture your imagination, not just become some empty doctrinal propositions in your head, but they begin to, to warm your heart. They take away that heart of stone, they give you a heart of flesh, you begin to worship. You begin to sing. Doxology begins to flow, and discipleship there follows, you see. Oh, beloved, this is our God. This is what he's done. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.29, he reflects on this promise that was given to Abraham, this unilateral promise. While Abraham slept, God preached it into Abraham. Abraham didn't do anything. And yet God bore in his own body, in the body of his son, the curse of that covenant, paying the price for our sins. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ bore in his own body the curse of the covenant for us that life might be given to us. As Paul reflects on this, he comes to Galatians 3. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. 
You see, you are the stars that Abraham saw in the heavens that day when he took him out. Look into the heavens. You see those stars? There's all Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church. Second Pres, Greenville, South Carolina. You see, that's, your, that's yours, Abraham. You're his inheritance. Oh, beloved, he goes on in verses 16 to 17. And this is the most complicated part of the, of the text before us this morning. I don't have a lot of time to spend on it, but let me just say a few things. He introduces this concept of a will. The Greek word for will here is the same word that's translated throughout the text, other than verses 16 and 17, via theke as the word covenant. Its origin is similar to the word barit in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament in Hebrew, to cut, right? It's also this word for covenant. And there's a lot of ink that's been spilt on whether it should be translated a testament, a last will and testament, or a covenant. But the bottom line is this, and I want us to understand this. No matter whether you translate it as will or you translate it as covenant, the point is, the point the author is trying to make, the point that the Holy Spirit breathed it out for is as follows. That both a will and a covenant, biblically speaking, come into force only after a death is established. When the death is established, right, the benefactors receive the inheritance. We all know how a will works, right? Verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as one who's made it is alive. Christ dies, we become the inheritors, the benefactors, the heirs of all that he secured for us in his life and death, right? And let me just cut to the chase. It was by dying that Jesus made all of his riches ours, specifically the blessings of his covenant obedience. You see, when we're joined to saving union with him, we become co-heirs of Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 16 to 17. In Christ, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also might be glorified with him. Well, that leads to the blood of the covenant in verses 18 to 22. We must hurry here. The preacher turns once again to the example of the old covenant in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant, and we said right early on in the sermon that the first covenant here, the reference is to the Mosaic covenant. So you need to again write Mosaic covenant over that first covenant with your pencil, was inaugurated without blood. No covenant was inaugurated without blood. Here he's reflecting on the fact that Christ had to redeem those under the law by his blood, that we might glory in his grace. And in verses 18 to 21, he reflects on the ratification of that covenant that we read in Exodus 24, right? After the reading of the law, the people declared, what did they declare? All that the Lord Yahweh, the covenant Lord, has declared we will do. And they took the blood of the calves and the goats and the book of the covenant, and what did he do with it? He sprinkled it all over the people. Can you imagine? Just think for a minute. What I was like, just feeling that blood. It was just thrown out with a hyssop branch. Just thrown out. You try to get up under it, right? Because you want to be under the blood. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
But you're not looking to the blood of the animals, right? In the Old Covenant, you're there and you're sitting there on the plains of uh, the wilderness when the law is given at Sinai and you're thinking to yourself, surely the blood of bulls can't save me. But by faith, you're looking through that blood to the blood to which it points, which is the blood to the one God promised Abraham. The one whom Father Abraham promised Isaac, the Lord Yahweh will provide a lamb. So they look through that blood of the animals and they see the blood of Jesus Christ. It's under that blood that they find refuge. Well, the sprinkled blood showed not only the penalty for breaking the covenant, but it also pointed forward to Christ. In the sprinkling of blood, Moses was saying that God would accept an animal substitute as an IOU, as we read in Romans 3, as in his forbearance on credit until the true and perfect sacrifice would come. You see, the same way you're saved is the same way that Hannah was saved, that Ruth was saved, that Joshua was saved, that Adam was saved, that Eve was saved, that all the old covenant saints were saved by looking forward to the blood that would come in Jesus Christ, looking forward until the true and perfect sacrifice would come. That's why Jesus says in the Mark 14, 24, as he's reflecting on this concept of blood and the covenant, he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. You see, Jesus Christ offered his blood in your place, in your stead. He suffers the curse of the covenant. It falls on him. He goes outside the camp to suffer the shame and the humiliation of the cross that he might secure your salvation. We're told in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he did this obediently in obedience to his Father. Oh, beloved, when you understand this, you will begin to understand the gospel, you see. And we need to be perfectly clear here as we reflect and lastly look upon the last verse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, once we have sinned, all of us have, right, in Adam and originally and individually. There's no way for sin to be put away except by the shedding of blood. You see, your niceness can't cleanse you from sin. Time does not cure sin's problem. Nor your good works. Nor your religious rituals. Nor... Right? Some people think, well, he, he died, so he goes to heaven. You know, justification by death, but just not the death of Jesus. It's the death of the individual. Right? We never hear people say, well, well, he's looking down on us. That's what we hear all the time, or she's looking down on us. But unless they're under the blood of Jesus, they're not looking down on us. You see, your sins will follow you to the grave unless you come under the fountain of Emmanuel's blood. No matter how much the unbelieving world despises the blood of Christ, it's the only blood that can make a sinner clean. In the end, either you pay the debt for your sins or you are by faith covered by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. And let me conclude with just three quick applications as it relates to this inheritance. I wanted to spend more time here, but I never have enough time. First, I want us to understand the certainty of the promise of your inheritance. Notice the certainty. It's promised. God promised it, and God gave an oath to it, right? And we've seen this repeatedly throughout Hebrews. It's a gift of God. It's not something that you work for, but it's something you received. The promise of God is secure because the God who made it cannot lie. He's sworn 
to give it to us. Not only the certainty, notice the quality of the inheritance. It's eternal. It can't be taken from you. It can't waste away. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept for you in heaven. You see, the inheritance that Jesus Christ has secured for you this morning, if you're under the blood of Jesus, is an inheritance that cannot be affected by rust, moth, or thieves. They can't destroy it. Whose inheritance it is, right? It belongs to Jesus, and by saving union, it belongs to us. So we're co-heirs with Jesus. You might not have a lot in worldly goods, but you know what's going to destroy all the worldly goods in this room? Rust, moth, and thieves. That's what's going to destroy it all. But the inheritance you have in Jesus Christ, the inheritance that's eternal, that's secure, has been purchased by him because it is his and his alone. It's his to give to us. You see, at death, Jesus calls this inheritance a mansion that he goes to prepare for us in heaven. In Hebrews 4, this inheritance is called a Sabbath rest. In Hebrews 11.10, it's called a, a city whose builder and maker is God. In Hebrews 13, this inheritance is called the city of God, the hope of every believer. In Hebrews 12.22, it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12, 28, it's a kingdom that will arrive in all of its fullness on the last day. You see, your inheritance is in the future, and yet it's already here in the present, right? In that the last days have begun. In Christ, we've already entered the kingdom of God. So there's an already, not yet aspect to this kingdom and to this inheritance. Our sins are already forgiven. Our consciences are already being cleansed by the blood of Jesus when we confess our sins. We're no longer slaves to sin, but now purchased slaves to Christ, free to serve others. You see, the one who promised and swore an oath has borne the curse in the death of his son, that we who now believe might receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, all the people there at Sinai, when they heard the curses of the law, they said, Amen. But what should, who should be saying, Amen? Amen. We should be. Right? When we hear this glorious gospel of this promise, this unilateral promise that God has kept in Abraham, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the new covenant, we are the people who say yes and amen. May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray and ask him even now. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the fact that every promise that you've ever made is yes and amen in Jesus Christ that every promise you've ever made cannot fail. We will fail. We will stumble and fall. And we would leave you if it were not for your constraining and preserving grace to keep us. So all praise and all glory and all honor is unto your name, Lord. We praise you, Father, for decreeing so great a salvation. We praise you, Son, for procuring and securing it through your perfect life, your active and passive obedience. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking the work of the Son, the decree of the Father, and applying it to our hearts, making us willing and able to believe. Oh, Lord, may we be as holy as any pardoned sinner can be, 
And may we as a church corporately be a holy people that men might see our good works and praise our Father who is in heaven. We pray this for the glory of the Lamb, the one worthy to open the scrolls. We pray this in his holy name.